Proverbs tells us that there is more hope for a fool than there is for a man who is wise in his own eyes. Stay put for more about Orson Pratt next on Polygamy, What Love Is This? This is part three and our final segment of our series on Orson Pratt and his book entitled The Seer. Jesus taught that a good root produces good fruit, but a bad root cannot produce good fruit. So what is the root of Mormonism? Is it good or bad? In our ongoing effort to expose the root of Mormonism, specifically Mormon polygamy, we're focusing on Orson Pratt and his so-called wisdom. <laughs> Last time we ended with a quote by him where he was explaining that men should love all their wives equally, even if he had a hundred wives. That is possible to love each wife equally. And then he added, he should love them and try to save them from their errors. And he should never love one more than he loves another unless they merit it. (laughs) There's the unless, yeah. Pratt's clearly teaching conditional love. And Pratt himself treated his wives accordingly. He said this. Yeah, a little conditional on God's part, too, it sounds like. Yeah. God loves the children of men according to their works. It's conditional, isn't it? And according to the good qualities which he perceives in them. Those who do the best, he loves the best. If they do equally well, he loves them equally. <laughs> okay, so there's your conditional love. Now, he says that uh, he, he, according to their good qualities, but yeah. Romans 3.10 says there's no one good. <laughs> no, not <laughs> oh, one. No, not one. <laughs> but God doesn't love us because we earned it. God loves us because God is love. And, then, and we quoted uh, verse 19 of 1 John chapter 4, where it says we love because God first loved us. And the truth is not one single human has or can earn God's love. And that's why we need Jesus. Orson Pratt got it all wrong. And when they begin with the wrong precept, everything that follows is corrupt. We ended last time with the statement that Pratt did not love his wives equally. Perhaps he decided some of them weren't worthy of his love. Perhaps they didn't earn it. Orson Pratt actually ignored and neglected some of his wives. In our first segment, we discussed his less than righteous treatment of his first wife, Sarah. We want to particularly bring your attention to one of Pratt's plural wives. He established a home for his family out in the Utah West Desert in Tooele, which in those days would have been desolate and further away from population Mm -hmm. because of modern translation than than transportation than it is now. But Pratt's family actually suffered starvation and death because of uh, because of his own less than perfect love that he preached a man should have for all of his wives. So we want to tell you what happened to show you that Mormon polygamists do not have a history of compassion and uh, compassionate and loving attitudes towards their plural wives and families and do not support their own flesh and blood according to their own celestial law of marriage, which is and was polygamy. This is what Fanny Stenhouse wrote about Orson Pratt. Yeah, she wrote a book called Tell It All. Chapter 38 says, This was the man who perpetrated the atrocious villainy which I am about to relate. And much against my own personal inclinations, I feel compelled to tell the story as it shows how shockingly this debasing system of polygamy can pervert an otherwise upright mind. 
Orson Pratt married the young girl of whom I speak in Liverpool by special dispensation from Brigham Young and her parents, themselves devout Mormons. They thought that their daughter was highly honored in becoming the wife of an apostle. She was very pretty and attractive, and for a time he paid great, great attention to her and brought her over to Utah as his bride. <clears throat> Arrived there, he utterly neglected her, and she experienced all the horrors of polygamic life. Okay, so she writes this, and she knew him. Yeah, okay, so yeah. so she was there, right? And so we we you know we have to trust, and we read about this in other areas, as not just Fanny's Ten House, so we can believe the account. Pratt lived in Salt Lake City, but he had placed this young wife and her children in Tooele, which, like we said, is about forty miles west of yeah. Salt Lake City. And they lived in a little log cabin. The mother was left alone to support herself and Orson's children by herself. Obviously, he visited her enough to be sure she had babies, but that seems to have been his only interest. Well, when her last child was born, she was suffering all the miseries of uh, horrible poverty. Her neighbors would help with what they could, but Pratt wasn't there, and neither did he visit. We quote another. Yes, another quote. One morning, there was literally nothing in the house for herself and her children, who, knowing nothing of their mother's sufferings, cried to her for bread. The poor mother quieted them with a promise that they should soon have something to eat, and then she went and begged for a few potatoes from a neighbor, and upon these they subsisted for three days. She then took her children with her, for they were too young to be left alone. Her babe was only three weeks old, and she went round to see if she could get work of any kind to do. In this she was not successful, and at length, Worn out by continual anxiety and privation and heartbroken by the neglect which she had experienced, she sank beneath a fever which promised very soon to be to prove fatal. fatal. Okay. In the meantime, Orson Pratt's in Salt Lake City. Sure. Okay. Some of her neighbors nursed her along in, in her illness, but they had their own families to look after, and they were sometimes forced to leave her alone yeah. uh, in order to take care of their own um, chores and families. One night, she was in a state of delirium from her illness, and she got up in the middle of the night, and she was barefoot, had little clothing, took her children, and wandered out into the snow. Now, a neighbor and his wife discovered her and brought them out of the cold into their own home. They clothed them and fed them and warmed them up, and then they took them back to her little log cabin. A message was sent to Orson Pratt in Salt Lake City begging him to come immediately if he wanted to see his wife alive. But Pratt did not come. At that time, he was actually engaged in taking another bride, and he wanted to hear nothing of his dying wife. Then the good bishop sent a young man who rode all night to compel him immediately to take the coach for Tooele, the young man paying his fare so that he might, not, might have no excuse. Then at last he came. Arrived at the little town where his poor wife lay dying, Orson conducted himself like the philosopher he professes to be. Before him stood the hovel, within which were his deserted little ones, wailing as if, as if sensible of the great loss of their mother's care, which they would soon have to sustain. And there on her dying bed was that poor wife and mother tossing in wild delirium. It makes sad. you sad just to read this. Yeah, it does. Orson had finally come to see her, 
um, but she remained in high fever and was delirious. Yet he exclaimed that she would recover. The neighbors told him it was evident that she was dying, but he refused to acknowledge how sick she really was. Hmm. The next day, she was still raving, and when Orson Pratt tried to hold her, this is what <coughs> happened. She caught his gold chain and snapped it in two. His touch and the sight of the chain recalled her for a moment to her senses, and she reproachfully, she said reproachfully, "'You are puffed up with pride, Orson, with your gold chain and rings, while you leave me and my babies to starve. Poor little lambs, where are they?' For a moment the yearning of a mother's heart for her children conquered the fever that tortured her mind." And she listened to her husband's attempted words of comfort as he said, I am with you now, Eliza, and I will take care of you. Steadily for a moment, she looked up into his face and with tears in her eyes said mournfully, it's too late, Orson, it's too late. You know, some of that, I wonder if some of that delirium could be, she's trying to reconcile the idea that polygamy is from God. Yeah, for sure. And 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 is this the way God treats His children? You know, His yeah. people. I I would think that would he, be part of some of her here, mental anguish. And she came here in good faith, right? I mean, she and all these promises, his husband and the promise, and all was well until she got here, and probably after having children. And yeah. it's very sad. So she said it was too late, and those were the last words she ever spoke. Orson continued to insist she wasn't dying, and he made his plans to return and go back to Salt Lake City. They asked him, well, what shall we do with her when she dies? And he merely said, bury her with her children. And then he went on to Salt Lake City the next morning she died. Hmm. And this is the treatment of a plural wife by the man who wrote this. It is the duty of a man who takes another wife to look after her welfare and happiness and to provide for her the comforts of life the same as for the first. And this is his... his <laughs> That's his declaration. His huh? declaration <laughs> on celestial marriage in this book, The Seer, on page 41. And as we read the book and go through it, we try to understand all the teachings of righteousness that Orson Pratt prattled on about. We wonder, how could someone who wrote all he did about godliness and God's will, and then as a polygamist treat his wives with such neglect and actual cruelty? Yeah. Are we really to take him and the other early Mormon polygamous men who are called prophets and apostles seriously? This is a pretty poor foundation for what is called the kingdom of God. Brigham Young publicly from the pulpit castigated his wives yeah. for whining and complaining. Obviously, that. they weren't a happy harem either. Plus, at least nine of Brigham Young's wives divorced him. Either Heber C. Kimball, he had 45 wives, and he can, said that he considered... Uh, thought no more about taking another wife than he did of buying a cow. Yeah. What kind of concern is that for the female? And here Orson Pratt so was one of his plural wives who was a new mother with three children. He let his family suffer extreme poverty, let them starve to death, leaning on neighbors to support them. How can that behavior convince anyone that having plural wives is a righteous and godly life? This next quote from Pratt will no doubt make a few women squirm, and it should, <laughs> yeah. but we must strive forward. <laughs> Onward and upward here. <laughs> but cannot a woman love many men as well as for a man <clears throat> to love many wives? 
we answer, a man has no right to love any woman as a wife unless God shall give her to him in marriage. He has power to limit his love where God limits it. And if he go beyond those limits, he transgresses. So likewise, a woman is limited by the law of God to one husband, and she has no right to suffer her love to go beyond those limits. A man loves many wives because God gives him many, and he is required to love them or become a transgressor. If God required a woman to have many husbands or permitted her to have a plurality, it would then be her duty to cultivate the principle of love towards them all. But this would not be an easy task unless the woman were made the head of the family, for one cannot serve two masters. And as the husband stands as the master of the house, if a woman had two husbands or masters, she would be sure, according to the words of Christ, to hate the one and love the other. For no one can love and serve two masters, but two can love one master. Yes, a hundred wives can love one master or husband, for he is their head. <laughs> he's, not, he's not too proud of his position in life, is he? Oh, I'm telling you. You know, God told Solomon, well, he told the kings of Israel not to take many wives because it would lead their hearts astray. Yeah. And here Pratt is coming right behind him and, and again, teaching opposite of what... Justifying is... Oh, it, it's so crazy. It's just so crazy. And um, according to what he's saying, Hill, the, the, the male polygamist, according to the male polygamist, patriarchy, the right. patriarchal marriage and all that, a woman can't have two husbands, but a man can have several different bed partners. Sure. Uh, or wives. Still, it's the same difference. Pratt maintains that a man is capable of loving many women, but women are incapable of loving many husbands. Now, all of this gets, we're not going to get into morality of all this it's because it's all crazy anyway. But a woman is certainly capable of loving all of her children. Well, sure. So why is he limiting her love, but he doesn't limit the the, the man's love? Right. It, it doesn't make any sense. And besides that, the Bible tells us that God doesn't show favoritism. We are all equal in Christ. God made one man for one woman and one woman for one man. Polygamy is alien and foreign to God's revealed plan of monogamy for marriage, no matter what Pratt or anybody else says. And to add more confusion to Orson Pratt's and other early Mormon men's teachings, they refused to acknowledge the validity of women having plural husbands. But... Yes. <laughs> Joseph Smith and Brigham Young and Parley P. Pratt and others were married to women. They knew had other living husbands at the time they married them as plural wives. Yeah, Joseph Smith went to Orson's wife, Sarah Pratt, and tried to seduce her into plural marriage. <laughs> and here he said... Yeah, no you sense. can read the Journal of Discourses, volume 11, page 268, where Brigham Young preached that Mary, the mother of Jesus, had two husbands. <laughs> and Orson Pratt says this, how far afar can a single religion get? And this is the root of Mormonism. Now, after having said so much in relation to the reason why we practice polygamy, I want to say a few words in regard 
to the revelation on polygamy. God has told us Latter-day Saints that we shall be condemned if we do not enter into that principle, and yet I have heard now and then, and I'm very glad to say that only a few instances have come under my notice, a brother or sister say, I am a Latter-day Saint, but I do not believe in polygamy. Oh, what an absurd expression. What an absurd idea. A person might as well say, I'm a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, but I do not follow, but do not believe in him. One is just as consistent as the other. Or a person might as well say, I believe in Mormonism and in the revelations given through Joseph Smith, but I'm not a polygamist and do not believe in polygamy. What an absurdity. If one portion of the doctrines of the church is true, the whole of them is, are true. Bingo. <laughs> and I would add, if one of them is false, the whole church is false. It's all yeah. false because it's all the root, right? Yeah. And so he is saying, now remember, he's an authorized yeah. apostle, apostle speaking yeah. with the authority of the first presidency. Yeah. And, and we read about that earlier. I think it was in part two, maybe it was part one. So based on what he said here, the bottom line is that today's LDS church cannot continue to embrace Joseph Smith as a true prophet of God and reject polygamy at the same time. Hmm. Can they? No, they can't. Not, not based not on really. what he said. That's right. <laughs> with the authority of the church behind him. Yeah, that's true. We have more of Pratt's wisdom. <laughs> Listen up. <laughs> If the doctrine of polygamy as revealed to the Latter-day Saints is not true, I would not give a fig for all your other revelations that came through Joseph Smith, the prophet. I would renounce the whole of them because it is utter utterly impossible, according to the revelations that are contained in these books, to believe a part of them to be divine from God and part of them to be from the devil. That is foolishness in the extreme. It is an absurdity that exists because of the ignorance of some people. I've been astonished at it. I did hope that there was more intelligence among the Latter-day Saints and a greater understanding of principle than to suppose that anyone can be a member of this church in good standing and yet reject polygamy. The Lord has said that those who reject this principle reject their salvation. They shall be damned, saith the Lord. Those to whom I reveal this law and they do not receive it shall be damned. Now here comes in our consciences, conscience consciousness. We have either to renounce Mormonism, Joseph Smith, Book of Mormon, Book of Covenants, and, all, and the whole system of things is taught by the Latter-day Saints, and say that God has not raised up a church, has not raised up a prophet, has not begun to restore all things as he promised. We are obliged to do this or else to say with all our hearts, yes, we are polygamous. We believe in the principle and we are willing to practice it because God has spoken from the heavens. Whoa, catch your breath there. Yeah. <laughs> so, so there you have it. statement. <laughs> the LDS church has capitulated and they will all be damned according to their yeah. original that's, apostles. That's right. Because they have given up polygamy. Section 132 says that. That's right. And it's still in the Doctrine and Covenants. So. Exactly right. There's yeah. no middle road in this. No, no middle road. Now, uh, Earl, <laughs> when you were in the church in good standing and you read something like this, I take it you probably didn't read it while you were in LDS. Oh, no. I read it many times. And you didn't get what was, <laughs> you didn't see any of well, this. I don't want to say I was you weren't stupid. Being a, but you weren't being a polygamist. And, and no. right there is clear you'll begin to be damned. You know, the thing is, is that we have this constant, 
thought that the prophet, the current prophet, is the is the most recent word, and 1890 or whatever, the polygamy was still there, but it had been stopped for certain reasons, and we just accepted that. We just believed that well, we will eventually practice polygamy again in heaven, but right now it's on hold, and that, that, we were happy with that. <laughs> I think it makes, it. you know, somebody, uh, and I know in my own experiences, but somebody else has also mentioned that the ex-Mormons and the uh, people who leave the LDS church, yeah. one of the main reasons, two of the main reasons are their experiences in the temple yeah. and polygamy. Yeah, polygamy is big. And when you read things like this, you can see how, go, wait a minute, you know, that's well, just and, a and, little bit. And it's right there to be read and understood yes. in a correct way. Yes. But we're just blind it or ignore it or don't think about it in those terms mm -hmm. when we're going when we're living it it's just it's funny to think about now that you can actually but then there's a lot of things yeah, that the bible things. teaches that i never understood either mm -hmm. that were very clear but mm -hmm. they just it's clear but your your mind just doesn't yeah, grasp it in a mormon mode um, or something spiritually blind there yeah uh, there, there's no middle road in these teachings, the way Orson Pratt and others have put it. It's either or. Yeah. The government, the United States government, told the Mormon Church to give up polygamy or, either or, or, or be banned from being part of the United States of America. But according to their prophets, God said either live polygamy or be damned. You know, so it's just either or. There's no gray areas. Um, on the other hand, Mormon polygamists have their unique either or scenario. It's like oh, Orson Pratt, either yeah. live polygamy or be damned. End of discussion. <laughs> Mormon prophets contradicted the God of the Bible who said that every man should have his own wife and every woman should have her own husband. And that grammar in the original language is singular for both the man and the woman, for both the wife and the husband. The man Joseph Smith claimed that God commanded polygamy, but he had actually forbidden it and set the example of monogamy. And God said those prophets claim they have visions they did not have. We quote Ezekiel. Yes, chapter 21, verse 29. While they see for you false visions, while they divine lies for you, to place you on the necks of the profane wicked, whose day has come, the time of their final punishment. In chapter 22, verse 28. And her prophets have smeared whitewash for them, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, Thus says the Lord God, when the Lord has not spoken. And that's so <laughs> relevant to today's oh, really uh, prophets is. of Mormonism. Yeah, it is. And, and that it describes the false prophecies and the false visions. Mm -hmm. uh, and we can know this because God doesn't contradict himself and he does not change his mind. The Lord has spoken, and we can know His mind, and we can know His will by reading His Word. He hasn't changed His mind. His decrees don't change, and they are not subject to alteration. <laughs> right. The Bible says monogamy is God's choice. Joseph Smith at the beginning said monogamy is the Mormon's choice. Then he changed his mind and said God commanded polygamy. Brigham Young and Orson Pratt and others comes along and validates that only polygamy is acceptable. Then Wilford Woodruff comes along and says the Mormons are to abandon polygamy and, and only monogamy is acceptable. But they didn't abandon it until 14 years after that. Then Joseph Musser, another fundamentalist, come along and sustain polygamy. What a confusion. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Mere men speaking against what God has already spoken about. 
and in the process leads many thousands away from God's pure, simple, and amazing truth. Jesus Christ is the Savior, and there is no practice on this planet, polygamy or otherwise, that will help anyone become saved. Jesus does that, and he does it all by himself. Now, we want to end this series with (laughs) another quote by Pratt about the pre-existence, so you can see more easily and determine if anything else he said is worthy of your trust. Yeah, listen carefully. (laughs) Both animals and vegetables consist of two substances. It is more of his wisdom, I guess. More of his great wisdom, yes. So both animals and vegetables consist of two substances, very different in their nature, body and spirit. Vegetable and animal life is nothing more or less than vegetable and animal spirit. The spirit of a vegetable is in the same image and likeness of its tabernacle. It is capable of existing in an organized form before it enters its vegetable house and also after it departs from it. If the spirit of an apple tree were rendered visible when separated from its natural tabernacle, it would appear in the form, likeness, and magnitude of the natural apple tree. And so it is with the spirit of every other tree or herb or blade of grass. Its shape, its magnitude, and its appearance resemble the natural tabernacle intended for its residence. (laughs) As you can see... Orson Pratt, in all his supposed wisdom, tells us that the vegetables we eat at dinner time actually have spirits that pre-existed, and we wonder if it's an odd spirit sometimes of those vegetables that gives us indigestion. <laughs> so watch out what you eat, and watch out what you believe. <laughs> you know, I had an ex-LDS girlfriend after... We both had become Christians, and she told me about this. She had read this here, and she told me about it. I didn't believe her. Well, it actually comes from the temple ceremony. It says everything is created spiritually before it was created naturally. And so whether it's the animals or the vegetables, and they were all created spiritually before they were created So what happens to the vegetable after you eat it? What happens to its spirit? Well, that's a good question. (laughs) Or an animal after you've had your little hamburger or something. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I don't that, know. That is, that's the way it is. In fact, it's um, part of the temple ceremony to hear that spiritual creation. And then it's created naturally. Jesus mm-hmm. and Michael do that. Oh, yeah. They've, they've got it all. They've yeah. got it so wrong. So wrong. Folks, we thank you for watching. And we, don't, we hope that we've maybe help provoke some people to get out and, and study and, what you believe. And study. study that it would be the key thing. Logically, yes. Yeah. And so this is the end of part three of Darn. Orson Pratt. True with Orson. <laughs> Thank you, Earl. <laughs> you know, Jesus Christ alone is the Savior. He always has and always has been the only Savior. And whether you believe it isn't the point. He is the Savior. If you add good works or polygamy or temple anything to a perceived salvation, you've missed the Savior. And if you miss Him, you've lost everything. Galatians tells us that if righteousness could be, gain, could be gained by good works, that Christ died for nothing. Jesus is Savior, whether you believe it or not. He is Savior all by Himself. He died on the cross to pay your sin debt. He rose from the grave, which proves that He had a perfect life and defeated death for us. What works can you do that is as great or greater than that?
One former polygamous member, now he is an LDS member, said that our own hands working good works is greater than anything Jesus did. That man doesn't need a good pair of hands. He needs Jesus. Thank you for watching. This has been the audio podcast of Polygamy, What Love Is This? with host Doris Hansen. Polygamy, What Love Is This? is produced by A Shield and Refuge Ministry. More information on this program, including the video version of it, can be found at whatloveisthis.tv. If you have any questions or need help getting free from Mormon fundamentalism, write us at contact at shieldandrefuge.org or call us at 1-800-877-425-9993.